This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for Halloween 2023. Welcome to the show, everybody. The main event this week will be my conversation with Ryan Canuel of Petracor Incorporated. It's a fine conversation, if I do say so myself, and very much worth your time, though I should note it is not especially Halloween-related. At least not until the end, when we talk a bit about horror movies, Ryan being an aficionado. If you want to hear me do something out-and-out Halloweenish, then may I suggest this year's Dice Punk's Halloween special, where I GM'd Something is Wrong with This House, a delightful little system about, as its name implies, haunted houses and the awful families who invade them. You can find that at DicePunks.com or by searching DicePunks wherever pods are casting. Also, if you like what you hear here today, or if you like the show in general, you can help us out by leaving us a good rating or review, or if it causes you no financial hardship whatsoever, throw in us a few bucks at Patreon.com slash E-T-A-O. I want to take a moment to thank our current patrons vociferously, with a special thanks to Carlos de los Santos and Darth Raptora, and an even specialer thanks to the mysterious Ian K, Lucas Coast and Sylvain Dufresne. So with that being said, on with the show. Enjoy. And Canuel, is how you say your last name? Yep. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Most that's rare. People get it on the first go. <laughs> well, I listened to you say it a few times. Oh, okay. So that helps. <laughs> but but that doesn't always like it's amazing how that isn't always definitive, actually. Right. Some people will yeah. like politely mispronounce themselves. However, they've just been mispronounced <laughs> um, anyway. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, where we talk about everything by talking about games. I'm Drew Messenger Michaels. I'm your host. And my guest today is Ryan Canuel. Ryan, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Drew. Yeah. Glad to pronounce you correctly to yourself. That's always a good yeah. start. <laughs> You've been on podcasts before, but they haven't really been game dev podcasts for the most part. They've been kind of like, you know, entrepreneur podcasts, business stuff, and zero shade to that kind of podcast, because what you do is both make games and run a business. Uh, and though that's very much worth talking about. And in fact, I think it's important to demystify the business side of things. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to ask you about like the more game design side of things as well, because I, I have a feeling you have thoughts that the world has not yet heard. So yeah. Let's begin with the current project, because as we're speaking, you have a demo that's about to go live. So let's talk about that game. What, for anyone who has not heard of it, is Mythic Realms? Perfect. All right. So Mythic Realms is uh, a mixed reality first role playing game that essentially transforms your room into a dungeon that you navigate through, you forage, you adventure and you do combat in your room. And so uh, enemies will kind of populate your actual space wherever you set this up. It could be your bedroom or your living room. And you have to fight them. You can chop down trees, mine, and all these resources that you're gathering in your, your room, which we've turned into a dungeon, you're then bringing back to a town. And kind of the main goal of the game is you've been tasked with rebuilding this kingdom from nothing. And so 
the way that you source materials is you go out and do these dungeons in the real world, and then you bring them back to this town that you design and build the town kind of in this top-down uh, mixed reality view. So like um, we put the town down on a, on a surface, or you can have it kind of in the middle of your room if you want, wherever you deem to put it. And then you will uh, place buildings, upgrade things from there. Then you can go into the town in VR, and that's where you'll actually kind of rest. You'll 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 upgrade your equipment. You'll get quests, and so kind of the loop of the game is like going back and forth between the uh, the town and upgrading and building that town, becoming more powerful, and then going out on these different dungeon adventures where we'll theme your room that you're playing in in different ways. So like it could be a cave or like an ancient forest. And so that is Mythic Realms. And we have our App Lab early demo is out actually on October 17th. So it should, I'm imagining, already be out by the time someone's listening to this. And When people uh, are hearing this. Yeah. Is that yeah. time limited or is that just around for the foreseeable future by the time people are hearing this? So it'll be around for the foreseeable future. Um, we're putting it out mainly because like mixed reality is such a st- you know it's it's been around for a while right like people people talk about and we've been doing augmented reality games for for a long time now and like people talk about stuff like pokemon go it's like that's usually the first example if someone's like never heard of augmented reality you say oh it's you know like that pokemon go game it was a big breakout hit so yeah it makes sense if that's people's only touch point yeah exactly and so you know and it's a it's it's a decent example but it it really actually when you think about it like does it, it used it very very lightly like and most people would you know, kind of turn it off this like after a few because it would drain your battery on your phone. Yep. The way it was really augmenting reality was it had kind of the map of the real world that you that you would navigate through on on your phone, and so we've been doing it for a long time, and uh, we we wanted to kind of push the bounds of what was possible in the space, and uh, we were excited by kind of the quest line because that, that's what it'll be out on is uh, quest three. Um, it'll also be backwards compatible with Quest 2 and the Pro. And, and we're really excited about kind of all the tech that that supports. Um, so we'll, we'll have the demo out live for a while because, um, you know, like what I was saying about it still being early is we've, we've made a whole bunch of assumptions about how people are going to play and use this game. But like, it's all still pretty new. And, and, and truthfully, we don't even really know once real people get in and, and we're not sitting with them in a room watching them play, you know, what do they do? How do they play this game? And so this is really kind of a test for us to, to put this game live and then see based on the metrics that we're seeing, like how do people play this and what do they do and, and how can that help influence how we build this game out further? To your mind, as you've done sort of research or anything like that, are there best practices in, for lack of a better term, in mixed reality yet? Or is it too early for that? You know, because when you describe Mythic Realms, it occurs to me that it's a very gamey game in a way that a lot of these experiences aren't. And I don't mean that as a bad thing or for that matter, necessarily a good thing, right? Just as like a factual description, it's got yeah. that core loop, you grow, you get stronger. That's that's something that is not sort of a given in these kinds of experiences. Do you like... To what degree is this an experiment and how much of that stuff people want in this setting? How much of it is just like making a game you'd want to play? You know, how did you come to the sort of design approach that you decided to take? Yeah, so I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the what really drew us to wanting to even make this was that, um, yeah, there aren't a lot that are this robust and there aren't a lot that kind of are trying to have this larger metagame to it. Um 
So I think like it is a little bit of an experiment for us to see for these kinds of games. Like I think um, early days of mobile games is probably a good example where like there was a like people will play more sort of hardcore games now on, on mobile because like the platform can support it and it's just gotten a bit better over time. You have stuff like Fortnite on mobile now. But but in the early days, it was a lot of really kind of hyper casual games because that was what fit the platform at the time. And I think um, what we see on a lot of current mixed reality demos is either um, it was just sort of a quick little experiment that someone put out or like an update to an already existing virtual reality title where they added it as an additional feature. Um, and there are some really cool augmented mixed reality first games in development, but there, there really aren't a lot out there that are trying to do what we're doing in the level of robustness. And so it is a bit of an experiment, um, but that was what drew us to it also was uh, we were just sitting around talking about um, kind of how cool a lot of the new technology was around mixed and augmented reality games and how could we actually use that technology to build a really robust game that's probably the fantasy that a lot of people have. And that was like, you know, we all as kids kind of imagined I think the world around us as this kind of fantastical different place than what it really was. And we wanted to kind of try and captivate that a bit with the design for this is like, feel a little bit like you're a kid again and you're in your room and they're, you know, you're, you're doing battle with these monsters and we can kind of bring that to life and actually have it be virtual stuff that you're actually fighting. For sure. I think about this a lot, actually, that, you know, as we not move from virtual reality to mixed reality, there's definitely room for both. But as like mixed reality becomes the thing people are excited about, it, it's like part of what was tough about VR, what remains tough about VR is the completely isolating yourself, right? Like mixed reality is sort of the natural state of things, as you say, as, especially for kids, you know, even just on the level of talking to someone about the thing you're experiencing, you know, playing a game on the couch with your partner and saying, look at this crazy thing that's that's happening in the game or whatever, or your room being part of it, right? Like your memories are all wrapped up in the game you were playing and the place you were when you were playing it. It seems like this is a really interesting way to explore that notion, right? Like on one level, as we're saying, it settles back into sort of traditional game design, meta loops, all of that. But on the other hand, it's sort of like going for the full potential of mixed reality to blur the lines between, you know, what you're playing or when you're playing and when you're not, I suppose, right? Or like, is it is it a city that's at a scale in front of you where you have kind of a God's eye view? Is it that your room at human scale becomes an enchanted forest? Yes, all of the above. Let's see how this feels. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I think that was also what drew us to uh, augmented reality over more virtual reality. As a, as a studio, we've been doing augmented reality games for a while now. And um, we really truthfully didn't do much in VR and we weren't super interested. You know, we did some stuff, I think, when like the DK2 was out and we were playing around with the tech and we did a little demo. We did like... Um, I think the game was called Shopping Spree, but you were like going down aisles and just like knocking stuff into your cart for trying to get as much stuff as you could. And of course, it was like a crazy grocery store where they were also selling like spinning saw blades that you had to avoid knocking into your cart. Um, so we did that as a little demo and um, it was fun to work on. But I think, yeah, the isolating part of it, none of us were really huge VR people. And um but I, but but with augmented reality, yeah, there was less of that isolation. You could see what you were doing. You were less worried you were going to like punch a TV because I think everybody has that story 
who has played VR where it's like, oh yeah, I slammed my fist into my desk or I like hit my dog or my cat. And, you know, if, if you live with other people, it's this kind of uncomfortable thing almost to do because, uh, yeah, you have to kind of have this isolated space to do it in. If you've ever done it at a trade show, that can be really uncomfortable. Like when you have lots of people walking around brushing up against you and you're totally, it's like you're blindfolded. Incredibly surreal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think mixed reality, it really interests and excites us because I do think it it solves some of those problems. Now, like what the game gameplay looks like in that space, I think that's, you know, yeah, why we're putting this out is it's, there's still some testing to be done to figure out what what do people really want? What do fun games look like in this? Are they smaller little experiences that people can do while doing other things? Like as um, I saw someone put out as a joke the uh, uh, for Quest 3, like a Subway Surfers screen that you could have in the corner and bring around with you all all time. Like the, <laughs> and so it's like, is that what people want? <laughs> Just you, like, yeah, you, yeah. Is algorithm slurry not getting pumped into my veins often yeah. enough? Yeah, that doesn't, I don't feel like that's a problem I have, but I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's like, is it small little things you can do while you're multitasking through other things? Like, I think that, you know, like Apple Vision Pro is a little bit of what they're kind of pushing. And um, Quest has a similar thing now where they're kind of divvying up um, mixed reality content into these like modules that are anchored to the world. So you could have kind of multiple windows of things open at the same time. Um, and I think that's that's really cool. And it, and it it could be something where, yeah, you can kind of play multiple things at a time. What, what we're building is more of a, hey, you, you sit and focus and just play this one game. And we're hoping there's a world for both. Like, you know, sometimes you want to just play little things and focus, you know, watch, you know, have a Netflix window open and play like a little game while you're watching a show alongside kind of the more deeper, like, you know, role playing, get right into the heart of the game. And that's what we're going for with this title. You mentioned Pokemon Go as a touch point, and I think it's an interesting one, not just because it's the big popular one, not just because it's actually pretty rudimentary and you know how it augments reality in some ways, and there's like further we can go, but also because it's kind of like the place where we think about it, like Pokemon Go specifically and Niantic's games generally, the place where we think about like to what degree do you fold this game into your day, and to what degree does the game expect you to structure your day around it, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a bigger ask kind of sitting at the corner of of some of this kind of game, especially when you combine the mixed reality stuff with you know with daily login bonuses or whatever, right? Uh, or or in the case of a lot of Niantic's games, like you know to what degree am I supposed to change where I'm going today <laughs> in order to yeah. accommodate you know f- you know finding a Rathalos in the new Monster Hunter one or whatever. Um, it seems like Mythic Realms is sort of more in the pocket of this is something you pick up when you want to, right? Like it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a, a pod you introduce to your reality. You are literally like augmented reality in almost the truest sense, right? You cast a spell and now your room is X, Y, or Z for as long as you want it to be. Is that fair to say? Exactly, yeah. I, like I, I think Niantic has a vision for um, like one of their core pillars is getting people active and and out and about in the real world and bringing people together. And I think that's great. Like I remember playing Pokemon go and I like, I would stop and like speak to other human beings, strangers in the park because we knew that we were Shocking. all playing. Yeah. I was like, Oh, we, we made eye contact and everything, but it was really cool. Cause like at, you knew what everybody was doing and it did bring people together. And like, it's nice that they have that as something that they, 
build their games around. And like I played the new Pikmin game that they had, and I was exploring parts of the city I'd never been to. Um, a Pikmin game is great. Speaking of, because yeah. the interaction is pretty low key, but it like incur- like, it's great. It's it's good. Yeah. And so, like we love those those games. A lot of us play them. But we were talking, and we were like, you know, there there's a place for that, and there's also kind of the people who just want to sit at home and play something or like are, are don't want to go out. Right. Like that's one of the things is like you said that, you know, it does sort of force a routine and it's purposeful for them is like, you know, the, the physical activity and getting people out and about like it's core to what they do. But I think for us, we were looking at it and thought, okay, well, what, what do you do when you don't want to do that? Like when you, when you do just want to stay home and like play a, play a more kind of single player experience and, um, we, we were thinking, you know, let's let's try this and see if this is something that people um, who are interested in these kinds of things might also gravitate to when when it's when it's not a nice day, because um, living in New England, every time Niantic drops a game and it's about to turn wintertime, I'm like, oh, you can't do this to me. <laughs> yeah. Prepare to trudge. Yeah, yeah. It's not not always the most practical. No, and that, that's totally fair. Right. Like, I, I don't think it's unreasonable for one aspect of games, if not the only one to be staying inside and engaging with a piece of media. I mean, that is, that is okay, right? Like, I, I I agree that there's a laudable aspect to the idea of wanting to get people moving and all of that, but it's somewhat at odds with what you're talking about, which is just like, you know, media that meets you on your own terms, that's that's there for you rather than demanding stuff of you. I don't mind demanding media in all sorts of ways, but it's not what I always want. Yeah, and and one of the things like that's interesting for ours is there really is a, a really physical component to it. Um, mm, mm. We actually had a conversation at one point with with someone we were pitching the game to, where they they wanted us to kind of change it to a to an exercise game, um, and I think that would have actually been a path to securing some funding for the title. And oh, interesting. Like, so you're it's now you're now a lumberjack, and like just the chopping down the trees is you know is physically demanding, and that's the core or or something. Yeah. So, and, and it already is like the, the combat itself is very physical. You have to swing, you have to actually like cut down the tree with an ax. So like the game does have that physicality already. It's just, you know, we're not having, it's not like ring fit adventure where like, you know, uh, we, we want you to like repeat it 20 times because it's an exercise routine. It's really more of like, you know, swing, like you would swing a sword to fight stuff. Um, so it's the same kind of controller interaction you would have in a VR game. It's just, you can see it in the space. Um, but, uh, you know, we decided not to kind of pursue, like it, it still is a very physical, physically demanding game. I would say in the mixed reality where you have to walk around, you have to be standing up, you have to swing to fight stuff to cut. And then we kind of purposefully built in the VR town component where there's like an actually forced rest mechanic to the game. So you can do the Mm. VR, you can go into your town in VR and then sit down and relax. And um, for that, like the, the town, and this has been kind of, you know, the game's still early and figuring out the messaging of how we talk about it um, has been interesting. And, you know, one of the things is, when we talk about building a town, it it really strays the line between like what people then expect with just those words is like, I always get like, is it like SimCity? And it's like, no, not, nothing like that. It's, <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're already trying to build an RPG. We don't want to layer SimCity on top of that. But it, it's it's a lot more like an Animal Crossing, right? Like you're, it's very casual. There's a few buildings you can make that, you know, it's, 
it's not really robust in like what how you build out the town, but it does give you some choice of where you put things, how it looks, and then you more about the time that you spend in the town crafting stuff and getting quests and um that that's more of a rest period to, to kind of force people to rest in between the more actiony combats. We decided we didn't want to do the do the um act activity route in terms of making it a fitness game just because we none of us have like that expertise in in fitness and it, it was a little bit too much of a pivot for this title you know is like yes we could make it a fitness game but could we make it a good fitness game do we actually understand like the human body enough to like not have people just hurt themselves doing things that we tell them to do that actually aren't good things to do in a workout and you know with all those things to consider we were like Let, let's just keep focusing on what it is but um yeah, that, that's kind of the physicality to the game. You're gesturing at a really important part of making games that I think is like something you have to learn. It's really, really hard to have an instinct for this from the jump, which is what to do and what not to do, right? Like scoping. Mm -hmm. But you're saying like you, you know, you considered making it a fitness game and then decided for good reasons not to. You're saying that you didn't go full act razor and didn't make it like a town sim as well as an explore, you know, an exploration game. Is this something you feel like you've gotten better at during the history of Petricor? At sort of like knowing where where the fun is or where your core competencies lie or what kind of game you're building earlier on in the process? Definitely, yeah. I, I think, you know, in some ways it's tough because each time we've tried to jump and do something a little bit bigger. And I think through our history, one of the times that we were honestly best was when we first started and we just made two really small mobile games. Um, neither of them made us really any money at all, but, but what they did do was they got featured by um, the, the, the first one got featured by Apple a few times. This is mind the arrow you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So reverse title, mind the arrow uh it um they even had shared it like on the app store official social media pages um which was super cool and it was the first game we'd done we had just started the company but that that doesn't equate to making money is a slightly terrifying <laughs> insight well we were we were on mobile i think at a time when it was already pretty well established and it was also a hyper casual title that we, we understood really well, I think, how to make the game and have it be a fun, like, little loop to the game. I think the part that we struggled with early on was how, how do we then monetize that? You know, like, we were maybe a little more idealistic about mobile and, like, oh, we're not going to, you know, bombard people with ads and try to jam in a million in-app purchases. And mobile had already reached a point at the time where that that pretty much was how you had to actually make any money. And uh, I think our reluctance to do that led to uh, then it not performing as well as it could have. But at the same time, it was a it was a really casual game. And one of the things on mobile, too, was that you'd get this featuring. And then like we had a week where it was on the front page and we got maybe like 200,000 people who who played it from that and like millions looked at it. So it was like it, it really like got a lot of eyeballs on it. But it was only that week, like the the week after. And this is the case for any like mobile developer who gets featured. If you're not running like an ad campaign is like it dips from like tens of thousands of people each day downloading it to like a hundred. And so right, right. that was something, um, you know, that we learned a lot through. But I think just scoping in general, 
we we had a few of those under our belt and i think then we were we were cocky that we could pull off something bigger and we went through a period um as a company where we did we tried to do some really big games that were just too big uh for the team that we had and the um amount of time that we had cuz petrocore we've always had two parts to the business we we do these original games and we also do a lot of work for hire for other studios. And this is kind of a story a lot of indie teams have, but um, we've, you know, built out a good work for hire business doing like museum exhibits and educational training games. And we also do a lot of work with like other game dev teams, just helping them specifically now more in like the VR AR side. But um, we uh, just kind of, started doing this game. It was called Operation Dogfight. And we probably spent, gosh, four years working on that game. But cumulatively, like the amount of time we actually put in was like someone would have some free time for three hours here or, you know, for maybe like three weeks in between projects. And so we really like sporadically worked on that. And it was just a terrible way to like work on a game, I think, for like morale and just like you were constantly getting pulled away for like months at a time and then you'd go back to it and be like what the heck was i even doing (laughs) yeah Um, yeah and so we learned from that like um at least i I found two things from that that were useful one was that um we just needed to scope games better for like the size of the team that we had and what we were doing like we just we needed to make sure that things were smaller that we worked on the other part of it was just like we started building that game really quickly like we 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 kind of did a demo told told ourselves like collectively oh we found the fun we really hadn't and then we just started making the game um so one of the things that we changed as a company reflecting on that was we're never going to make a game again ourselves like we'll make up to maybe a vertical slice in this case that's what we've done with mythic realms is like we'll prove out like each of the features for this we will test it. Um, we'll pitch it to places and see if we can procure some funding for the title. And like, that'll be our marker of success is like, if we can get funding, then we'll continue building it. If, if we can't, well, we'll put out the vertical slice. We'll see how it does. And then we'll move on. If there's like, no, if no one's interested in it, we'll, we'll move on to the next thing. And we'll do the same thing again, where we'll build like a prototype vertical slice. We'll kind of have the different steps that we'll follow through. If we're seeing there's interest, there's funding, there's some kind of external validation that we have for this game besides the fact that like we, we just kind of like it. Um, and that's something that I think took a while to get to, but like the longer we've been doing it and, and launching a few games that had had like successful parts to them that I look back on and I'm proud of all of them for different things. But like the failures of those taught us a lot. And so, yeah, we, we've hopefully gotten a lot better about scoping, but I think part of it is also like as each, as each title gets bigger, it comes with new beasts that lurk within the, the, within those projects. Here there be, yeah, new and interesting dragons. You mentioned, you mentioned, you know, you, you do a vertical slice, you build a prototype and then you seek funding. Petricor, you've talked about this a few other places, was fully bootstrapped from the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. 
which which means a few different things, right? I mean, for for our um, I don't know for non American listeners, does this even translate, right? But like the, the the notion of pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps was originally an idiom that was sort of a joke, right? About something that's impossible, right? You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But at some point in the history of the idiom, began to be taken dead seriously, right? And people told people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps for companies. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong here. It refers specifically to not initially seeking venture capital or anything like that, but simply starting up a company getting a project, getting money from that project, reinvesting, etc. And that's sort of what you've done from the beginning, building games and taking on client work and all of that. Uh, before before I go further, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's Excellent. how we've Great. done it. So when you seek funding now, what kind of, like, are you talking to platforms, publishers? Have you gone after the, the world of venture capital at this point? Like, you know, for those who are trying to do what you're trying to do, like, what does that look like? You build a prototype, you think someone might be interested in it. Who then do you talk to? Obviously, I'm not asking for specific names, but like categories yeah. of people. Sure. So yeah, we've we've bootstrapped since the start, and we're not looking for venture capital at this time. I'd say so we started Petricor, we were all, um, we were actually still in school. We were all in college together. And I had called a bunch of people and said, hey, like, would you give this a try? Um, and, and, and truthfully, I wasn't even really, I'd say I'm a, I'm a kind of conservative entrepreneur in a way that like, I am a little more risk averse. And so I would, uh, I was, you know, was kind of pushed by a mentor that was, I had said, well, at some point, like I, I saw my trajectory in games as like, uh, I would go get a job somewhere or an internship and work my way up the ladder. But I said, at some point, I'd love to be like, you know, an executive producer, or, like really kind of running a project. But like, I saw that as like a 20, 30 year, you know, thing. Um, you get all kinds of experience and then that option becomes available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this mentor had really kind of pushed me to just, well, let's just try it, like try and see if you can like start your own thing and then you can be there instantly. And I was like, wow, that sounds great. Um, so I had called up some friends and was like, Hey, would you want to do this too? And they were like, sure. And kind of my pitch was, um, like, let's give it a year. Like, we'll try to start our own thing. There'll be money involved because we're going to try and get these client projects and bootstrap the company. And we're not just like, I don't expect we're all just going to do this for free. Um, let's try it for a year. And then like, if it all falls apart, we can all go our separate ways and say we tried and we'll probably all get better jobs because we tried. Um, and like, let's just see what happens. So that was that was how like the bootstrapping kind of began was that. Uh, it was out of necessity that we were all still in school. None of us had like previous jobs and games where we had any kind of decision-making power in the same way where like if someone came out of a big AAA studio or even like one of the mobile studios, like anyone who came out of the industry having worked in it for a while would have a far better chance at getting venture funding um, because, you know, they have that experience. And then also at the time, you know, we, we just wanted to make games together. We didn't have that kind of flavor that I think venture funding requires of like, what's the angle, what's super different about what you're doing. Like we hadn't figured any of that out yet. We, we just knew we wanted to make games together, but we, we didn't have like the thing I think that you really need to hang your hat on if you're trying to raise venture funding is like, especially now you've got a thing, you know, previously it was like blockchain and, and, and crypto and NFT kind of stuff like that was 
something you didn't, it, it wasn't the only people who were raising money, but like there was a lot of interest in funding there. So that was something a lot of people were doing. And if you didn't want to go with that angle, you would have needed an equally compelling narrative from a venture capitalist's perspective, right? Exactly. Yeah. You need to be able to say, this is going to make you back, you know, 10 times or more the money that you're putting into me and quickly. And like, um, that's just not something that we're ready for. Um, and so, and it's just not necessarily a lifestyle that aligns with the company as it exists right now. So I think for us, we've, we've bootstrapped since the start we want to continue the bootstrapping. And when I say funding, it's really like approaching the platforms themselves for funding. So we had some success with this for, uh, we did do a game um, actually with with Google Stadia um, that we had gotten um, some funding for uh, this game, Battle Billiards, that originally was a game jam that we partook in that that Stadia had co-ran with this group, Playcrafting out of New York. And we were one of the winners of that game jam. So we, so we did get a little bit of funding from that that helped us build out that game. And unfortunately, you know, Stadia didn't, did, ended up shutting down before we could launch it. But um, it was still kind of our first real kind of funding from one of these platforms. Um, and then we also got some money f- uh, from, um, uh, we did a, a Snapchat game, so we had gotten some funding for that project. This was sort of your, it was it was spiritually similar, like an interesting precursor to Mythic Realms, right? You're, you're speaking of Lens Detective? Uh, yep, exactly. That really was our first big AR game. We'd done some like smaller demos, um, but we got connected with the games team at Snapchat, and they were looking at that time for augmented reality games that were more robust. And so that became lens detective where the idea for that was turn your room into a crime scene that you can investigate. And the real kind of sell for why AR was that, you know, when you're a detective, you're looking for clues. You're like on your hands and knees looking around the room and like, you know, you're, you're looking for that hair follicle or whatever, right. That that's somewhere. And so you, you can't really get that same feeling, um, in any other medium where like we can actually put some stuff like that in your room that you have to look for. Um, and so same thing, you know, we wanted to have kind of an escape room feel. So there'd be like puzzles too, and the stuff you'd find would help you solve the puzzles. And so that, that became lens detective, which, um, we launched that and, um, you know, that had, had, it was smaller than what we originally intended because there were some changes in, at uh, Snapchat while we were building that, um, you know, we kind of midway through reached that point where all the large tech companies started cutting significant amounts of their staff. And unfortunately, we were working with really awesome people on their games team that all ended up getting cut. And so we ended up having to kind of pivot the game a little bit to change, you know, one of the major pieces of functionality uh, was a service that was deprecated in those layoffs. And so we, 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 we pivoted and we're happy with what we put out. Um, but we learned a heck of a lot doing that, especially making games that change your room. So it very much is a spiritual precursor to Mythic Realms because, yeah, well, while we were building that, we were like, okay, with everything we learned from this, like what, what could be really cool? And we were kind of talking about role-playing games and fighting you know, monsters in your room, and that, that got us on the Mythic Realms course. 
Well, that's fantastic. And j just for the listener's context, that mentor you referred to earlier would have been uh, Monty Sharma over at Mass Digi. Is that right? It would be, yes. Okay. Monty's okay. been uh, tremendously helpful for us. Yeah, and just putting a name to it, because I think that's such an important part of the path you're describing, right? Like, I think people basically understand, you know, if, if you if you put together a pitch deck that says something, something NFT, or I guess right now, something, something AI, right? Yeah. Then you might get someone to invest in your studio even before you have anything to show. I think it's clear enough to people that you can just build the game, you know, part time on your own recognizance. But like you said, there's huge problems with that um, or, you know, huge challenges. And I think the path you're describing is super interesting, right? It's But it's dependent upon getting the, that first project those first couple of projects, which I believe Monty helped you with as well, right? So it's, it's th this, this, I guess, why is why I opened with a, a definition of the history of, of bootstraps, as yeah. you know, as an idiom, right? Is, I think there's a mythology around this as though you like you, you dug it out of the earth yourself, and in no way to diminish the hard work that you guys are, are doing or the lessons you're learning. I think it's important to acknowledge that this, you know, this starts with someone to open a door, right? And then you, it's up to you to walk through it. A hundred percent. Like, and that, that's one of the things that's, as I look back, you know, it, it, the amount of time someone has opened a door for me, that's, that's been the thing that, yeah, gets me into the room. And there was a, like you said, there was a lot of work involved once you're in that room. Um, and I, you know, I've, I know, and I've seen doors open for people where they, you know, turn around and go, eh, I'm not going to go through that. But uh, and sometimes know, that's the right choice. Let's be clear. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think um, totally that, that like, you know, from the bootstrapping, that's one of the hardest things with it is you need those people who are willing to do that for you. And sometimes that's really hard to come by. Like I was tremendously lucky that Mondi Sharma and Mastigi I met through school. He was, he was, uh, running a program that was kind of a first of its kind thing. And I met him and became really friendly with him through that. And um, the school that I had gone to, it no longer exists, Becker College, um, which was in Worcester, which is where we're based. Uh, Mass Digi also kind of shared uh, the spotlight with Becker. They, they were housed out of it. They were like a separate entity, but they had funding from the state to like grow the games industry in Massachusetts. And um like I was really lucky that I was able to get into their program because that got me close with Monty, who then was the one who really kind of pushed me to do this and helped when early on we were just kids from school point to us and say, no, you can, you can trust them. And uh, like that was huge. We, we would not have survived if it wasn't for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. And it's, I, again, I just want to be explicit because again, you've, you've, um, a lot of the podcasts you've been on, as I mentioned at the top, have been more focused on the business side of the game's business than on the, the or the, you know, their business podcasts and you're the game guy coming on and that's the novelty. Yeah. And I think I will ask you questions more about game design again. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. they're coming or, or maybe you're dreading them. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I, I think it's super important when you talk to someone who runs a business, I talked to Tanya X short for, from Kit Fox a little bit about the business side as well. And, you know, we do it whenever we can. Because I think it's really important for people to understand that it, it is something a lay person can get, right? Like, this isn't just, you know, completely arcane stuff that only a handful of, of VCs understand or whatever. But at the same time, there is genuine complexity to it. It is a skill set you've got to learn that is discreet from the rest of running a studio, working at a studio, etc. So, you know, acknowledging the path to competence in it, to, you know, the opportunity to try it, and then also what those skills are, to me is like really important if people want to understand how games are actually made. Yeah. 
Definitely. You mentioned that you consider yourself sort of a, a conservative, I assume lower lowercase c conservative uh, yeah. uh, as an entrepreneur, just in the sense of risk aversion. So is is that why you're you haven't sought venture capital money at any point, right? Or is, or is it more philosophical than that, right? Is it purely about the risk? And I, look, look, if you want me to cut this question because you don't want to like talk shit about, about the, the VC culture, that's totally fine. No. But it strikes me as something that is like wise to avoid for a lot of categories of people, of businesses, et cetera. And so I, I wonder, you know, if how firm a line that is for you and, and how you came to it. Yeah, I... It's not something that we would never do. Um, I think for me, what, why we've avoided it is one, what we're doing has been working. And so we've seen just year over year, some, some success indicators we can point to and be like, yes, we, we've made more money than we made last year. We've grown the team since last year. And there's been some bumps along the way, but for the most part, like the strategy that we outlined where we'll, we'll do work for hire alongside original projects, try to get those original projects funded by like publishers, platforms, etc., cetera, um, has been working. And so that gives us some freedom where we don't have really like investors breathing down our necks saying like, I gave you money and I expect that money to turn into more money. And so like we haven't needed it. Um, that being said, like if we really... Like it, it comes with a bunch of downsides and that is like I spend more than half of my time being a salesperson, <laughs> reaching out to people, trying to drum up work. And so like it's not this is like I think that's the thing that stuff is like with with that side of the, like there's so many problems that come with it where um, it's not easy. You're constantly looking for the next thing. Like I'm always worried about a project ending and then like, how does the next one align perfectly with that one ending so that people aren't sitting with nothing to do for two months? Cause every time someone doesn't have anything to do, that's money that's not coming in. So it, it's, it's not easy. And the allure of um, trying to raise f fundraising through investors would be that like, you could just have this pile of cash to just focus on solving a problem for like, a year or two um and i and like that would be the reason to get it would be if like we've we've played around with different things as a, as a company over time and we still do to an extent and if at one point i said okay um it, like as a team we've evaluated it and we look and like as a company we decide we're going to do mixed reality gaming we're going to be like the biggest mixed reality gaming company um, we'd probably then try to raise venture funding around something special that we could do in, in mixed reality gaming. And um, that way we could just kind of focus our efforts on that because like there's this larger problem that we want to solve is like, how do we do that? And we, we need money to just sit and focus on that problem. Um, right now, we, we haven't put that stake in the ground where we just say like this, you know, we, we have... Um, Monty's also someone who, who, who this comes from, but he, he, he described it as like a hurricane map. So like, you know, when you, when you see a hurricane map, you, um, it's like out in the ocean and there's like that cone in front of it where it's like, you know, it could, could, could go down to Florida. It could, you know, end up in <laughs> yeah, like North yeah. Carolina. Um, and like, you know, a lot of businesses might be out in the ocean and they're just forming as a hurricane. And like, you have that cone in front of you of like, well, I know we don't make diapers, but like, you know, I, I beyond that, like, I know vaguely what we're doing here. 
Um, but like, I don't quite know where we're going to land. Like we're playing around with a few different things. Like, let's see. And over time as a business, like we've kind of honed that cone in more and more, but it's not, I, I can't say like, yes, we, we specifically are going to hit this one thing. We're still in that kind of like, nah, there could be a few different directions we could go in. But um, I think over time we've been honing it more and more and more. And if we did kind of reach a point where it was like, we knew exactly where we wanted to be, then that would be a time where I would, I would put a pitch deck together and go out and start looking for VC funding to, to tr- fulfill that vision. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense, right? Because the stuff you're doing now, A, doesn't require that big pile of money, right? Like you can, yeah. uh, you can be a salesperson several days a week. Yeah. And B, the stuff you're doing isn't really the kind of stuff that a VC would you know, salivate over, right? Like you're making, you're making games that make a profit, uh, presumably at least in, in enough cases to keep the lights on, but that's not really what a VC is interested in betting on. They're interested in betting on like a big play that changes a space or something like that to sort of, you know, use and perhaps overextend the hurricane metaphor. They're betting where it's going to hit and making enough bets that some of them actually will hit. It's just fundamentally different from the way you've been working as a studio up until, up until this point. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I want to make sure I appreciate you talking to me about the business side, because, again, I, I, I don't feel the need to defend talking about it. But I think some people who listen like that's something we talk about less on this show. So just to explain why you're hearing this, uh, we do talk about everything by talking about games is the idea. But, you know, you presumably started making games less because you're an entrepreneur and more because you're into games. Right. So mm-hmm. so, so so talk to me a little bit about like how Mythic Realms or how. Let me ask this a different way. When folks have asked you what your favorite game you've made is, you've pretty consistently said Mind the Arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, is that still true? Or is some of the stuff that you're working on now at least poised to become something else that you're interested in? Like, like what are the game design avenues that you're excited about pursuing? Yeah, it's tough. You know, I, I think I've liked all the games that we've made. Mind the Arrow just has this thing where it was the first and... There were so many moments of it that were just exciting that I, it just always is this thing that I gravitate backwards towards as, you know, and I'm not someone who tries to live too much in the past, but like, <laughs> it was just, you know, we were forming as a company, like there was a lot of both chaos and unknown and crazy stuff happening at the time. But like, we made this really, and, and I got to like, you know, I've transitioned more into a business role, right? But, but early um, days of Mind the Arrow, I did a lot of the concept art for that. And so some of the final kind of look of the game was like my design. And it's a very simple game. That's why I was able to design it. <laughs> but um... <laughs> you do have an art background. Yeah, yeah, but totally. That's not like a skill you've been practicing every day or anything. Yeah, but it um, it was something that... Um, I just got to take part in and really enjoyed. And so um, I I will say I think Mythic Realms is coming close to being something that I will look at and say, you know, I think that might be my favorite now. Just and 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 part of it is like I I'm someone who's more like I'm not it's not really the game itself, it's more sort of how people react to the game is what really excites me um so why i always point back to mind the arrow is when we made that i think one of the like more profound moments in my career was uh when we put that out finding a video on youtube and i've talked about this a few times but like it was a father and son in russia playing this game together 
talking about it and having a fun time. And they made like a 20 minute video, them like reviewing, playing it. And like, I had someone I knew who speak Russian translate it. And he said, oh, they, they like it. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> you thought they would have just been just reading the game, just absolutely yeah. tearing it apart. For, yeah, that would have been, <laughs> been, I mean, like, you know, engagement, but disheartening. <laughs> yeah. But like, that was such this moment of like, okay, here are these people literally on the other side of the world that I would probably never like cross paths with in my, in my life. Right. And like, we made this thing that even momentarily was like a part of their life enough so that they made a video about it and talked about it. And like, that was amazing. Like that was just like, you've made this thing that like touched so many people or like all around the world. Like we could see in the analytics, people were playing it all over. And even if they only played for like a little bit, there was just, it was kind of magical just to like have that, to like something you made, like touch, just came into contact with people in that way. And so that's really like the thing that makes it my favorite still is we, we've made other games and people have played them, but like it hasn't always captivated people in the same way where that, that content has been made. I will say for Mythic Realms, though, we've shared it with a few streamers and people have made like 10, 20 minute videos of them just like playing it and having a great time. And then I'm reading the comments and everyone's like, what is this? I can't wait to get it. So like I'm having the same feeling again with that of like seeing people enjoying it. Like at the end of the day, that's like why we make games, I think, is like it, I, I, I get more enjoyment seeing people enjoy them than like the actual kind of like it process of it being made. And so I think if, 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 if we can get this right and ha have a ton of people playing it and having a great time and making these videos that we can watch and see people having a fun time, then, then mythic realms might replace mine. The arrow as my favorite. That's really interesting that, you know, to you, it isn't so much about like solving a thorny design problem and then seeing that people get your clever solution or whatever. It's it's just about like seeing the effect that it has on people. That makes perfect sense, right? And that makes it make a lot of sense that what's going to be your favorite or the work you're most proud of is all wrapped up in how it's received, right? So so by its nature, something that's not out certainly can't be your favorite yet, <laughs> even <laughs> even nominally. It can just it can merely be on the road to being. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's a quality that probably a lot of people who run studios share. That like the thing that gets you up in the morning is is the realization of the thing, the getting it to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Do you miss being more hands on with the actual game making stuff sometimes? Or or given, you know, given what we were just talking about, are you pretty happy where you're at? Um no, I, you know, like, I, I like the fact that I get to help build the environment that people can create these things in. Like, there's something about making sure that everybody has what they need and that, like, these kinds of things are able to happen somewhere. So, like, I don't know, there was things like thinking about the out outline like how we set up our new office because we moved into a new office like where do we put people how do we like make the room how do we make it comfortable like I, it was it's weird but like there is something about that and i'm, I'm veering off into the uh, business production end again but no, like, you're good you're good I, I i like that kind of like okay what what is our what is the environment here like we we spend so much time talking about culture and trying to like build a really great culture and like i love that part of it because it's like i'm not i'm i'm truthfully not you know like it was simple art for mine the arrow which is why i was able to do it but like i'm i know i'm not a, a really kind of hands-on 
creative type person. But what I do love is like working with people like that and then trying to make it make it a good environment where they can get that work done and be as creative as possible. And so I think that's what I, I do miss sometimes like, you know, when you're a little bit on the outside looking in of like people building these things and not quite knowing how they do it. But there is something about also like knowing, you know, like, well, I wasn't able to do it, but I, you know, took everybody out to lunch afterwards for doing it, you know, and that, that, that felt good too. So I don't know, you know, that, that's what I just love about it. No, totally. I mean, like you, you say you're going back to the business side and indeed you are, but also like, you're still talking about design. You're talking about systems design in a certain way, right? Like yeah. almost spiritually similar to conversations we've had on here. Like maybe our first interview with Bryant Cannon, where he was making systems for the developers to use, right? Among the other things he was doing on the first oxen free game. And you know what you're doing, you're not making the game. You're making the thing that makes it you know, better for people to make, to do their best work in making the game. I think being a leader, like in the proper sense, not in the sense of being glorified and having your name on the door, right? But in the sense of <laughs> setting up what the company culture is like and, and making sure everyone is safe and gets paid and, and is happy and all that, right? Like, I think that is a skill set that I think, again, a lot of people think they kind of get for free, right? Like so many people think someone who's a good designer is automatically a good boss and oh boy, are those two different skill sets. So yeah. like it's what you're saying is super important. And I think, I think absolutely worth talking about. And, and like, yeah, I didn't mean to make you self-conscious about the business side. I just wanted to make sure you had <laughs> the chance to connect those dots, you know, cause I don't, I think they're too seldom connected. Yeah, no, I like that. I, I appreciate that you're letting me connect the dots. Thank you for connecting dots with me. Let's talk about a couple of other projects. Uh, you have a project that is not out in the US and that I have not played, but that I would very much like to. Another kind of formal experiment uh, called Battery Boy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so my understanding of this game is that it plays differently depending on the battery level in your phone. Is that is that accurate? Yes. So, um, one thing I should say before I jump into Battery please, Boy, please, please, um, is a lot of our games. Like I, I love talking about the design behind them, but I I do want to give credit where credit is due. Um, so Oliver Awat is our is our lead designer. Um, for a lot of these titles and so battery boy was like entirely his his creation of like we were you know messing around prototyping things and he's really the one who does the early prototypes of a lot of these and figures out like what's actually fun about them here you are um, boosting the team like you said you like to do money where your mouth is yeah. for sure <laughs> yeah exactly i couldn't have said that and then been like yes battery boy my creation <laughs> um <Yeah>. so um <laughs> So Oliver came up with the idea was like, well, what if, um, you know, it was a endless runner that changed based on the battery level of your phone. And we were like, that is wild. Like, yes, let's, let's, <laughs> let's make that. And so, um, yeah, we, we, we built it. And, um, I think like, you know, if, if, if he was here, he might have some things to say about like that, um, you know, mechanic, like, I think, uh, in the end, we we found it was like a compelling pitch, but like actually kind of difficult to design around. And so um, we did we did launch it and it, it actually did really well in China. I think it reached like number three or four of an arcade on the app store and like number 20 or 30 overall when it came out, which is which was like a big deal. Um, and we had a lot of people play it. We actually got some money uh, at one point and the didn't ever it never ended up launching but we we brought it to um like tv boxes as well so like an android tv port of that game we had to obviously remove the battery life aspect of it which 
um, was a little sad. But uh, how did you do that? Did you like put an artificial countdown in there instead? Or like, what did you do? Oh, gosh. Um, we, we did that a while ago. I don't remember what we did. I think we may have. Oh, we played around with a few different things. I think in the end, we might have just had it be randomized, which is kind of like the lame answer. But <laughs> no, I, I, this is a longstanding interest of mine is what if you would, what, you know, what happens when you design something around, you know, a hardware gimmick or whatever, and then you, you yeah. lose access to that gimmick? Does the game still work? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, at the time, we ended up finding like, because we thought, oh, we're one of the only ones. But someone did. There was there's a there's a iOS game called Black Box that um it it, it it was different in that it was just like a puzzle game where each puzzle required you to do something weird with the phone. And I think they might have actually had to like change it or gotten delisted because like one of them was like, throw it like 10 feet in the air. Um, like all the puzzles required, like turn the phone, um, like it, all the sensors would be different puzzles. So like one of them was based on the battery life. And to like solve all these puzzles, you had to like kind of break different components of not not really break it wasn't intended to break but uh basically play with the different sensors and try different things so um we we loved that game as a, an example we kind of just took the battery life aspect and ran with it but that was a really interesting interestingly designed game something else you've been working on uh is the remake of ah um which i i don't think i pronounced right <laughs> but the you know the the base jumping sim uh indie legend we actually had uh ichiro lamb on a while ago who is uh head of dejoban could you talk a little bit about your your work on that yeah um so ichiro had uh, um approached me during during the covid times and um had said would you, you know, would you ever want to collaborate on something together? And I had known him for a long time since we'd started the company and even a little bit before. And um, I always really admired his work. I actually played some of his games when I was in like high school and college. And uh, so I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And we were kind of in a fortunate position at the time where we had um really the means to, 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 you know, fund the efforts and co-development with him. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we decided to, uh, to, to, to join forces and work on the remastered version of Ah. And so, um, I, it should be coming out, uh, relatively soon. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was a really, fun project to work on. It was nice to kind of get the chance to collaborate with another studio, um, which is something that, you know, we'd always done in a work for hire capacity where it was like someone was paying us money to build their vision. So the scales of balance were a little, you know, the, or the scales of power were a little different. Um, whereas this was a lot more collaborative and, um, just overall, like a really great experience for us to like work with another team and see how 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 Ichiro designs games and how, how we could work together. So, um, yeah, we we loved working with Dejoban on that, and we're excited to see people playing it. That I think it's Steam Next Fest. There's a demo that's um, uh, either out or or coming out quite soon, um, or it is out, and so people should be able to go and play the demo of it, which. Um, Super well done. 
Yeah, no, it's really good. I checked out the demo before we talked, and it's I, as as somebody who played the game back back in college, actually, yeah, yeah <laughs> back in the day, uh, it really captures the spirit while while upping the sort of you know the production, the look. The old one holds up pretty damn well, but definitely looks old, right? Yeah. This adds this kind of uh, cyberpunk. I guess, uh, aspect that you know that the old one didn't have cyberpunk, but this, this gives you more neon, which is extremely important if you're trying to capture the vibe. Yeah. So yeah, really neat thing. Cool thing to keep an eye on. And th- this is an interesting direction for Petricor too, right? Cause when you talk about work for hire, it's usually making something that is branded or something like that, but this sort of collab with a different studio, correct me if I'm wrong. That's a bit of a new direction for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was a really we it was it was something that we hadn't really considered and mm. truthfully like wasn't something i was really on the lookout for but mm. i did you know like at the at the time when we started it um cuz it was a little bit of a go, oh, like a while ago now that we had first first started talking before we decided to go forward um at that time the the whole kind of mixed reality focus we were on the fence about it a little bit. And, and so um, I think for us, this was a path also that, that we were like, okay, like, let's try this and see, you know, is this another business model for us? Like there is a lot of remasters for uh, larger AAA titles, but like, there's a lot of really great older indie games out there too, that like people have really great memories of and would want like a remastered version to play. And so it was an, it was, you know, uh, both kind of a cool chance to work on a property that like a bunch of us had played and, and enjoyed. And also then also saw it as like a viable path of like, okay, if, you know, if this goes really well, maybe, maybe there's something in like remastering more indie titles. Um, But also gave us a chance to, to work with another team because one of the things when you start, like right out of school, like we did where we, a lot of us just didn't have any, like we were, we would talk to other people to understand how other studios work to figure out how we would do things and, you know, watch lots of GDC talks. So like we weren't (laughs) like sitting around trying to come up with how to run a game studio from nothing, but like we don't have the firsthand day to day in the studio vibe of how other people do things. So to pair with Dejoban and see that was, was really valuable for us because we just, it, it let us kind of see, all right, how, how do other places do things? Um, so it was also really valuable in, in that way. If you can say what was something that Dejoban does differently, you know, as a studio that's been around a lot longer than Petricor. Well, one thing was uh, our note-taking process com- changed completely because Ichiro's <laughs> really good at taking notes, and I was like, "Wow, this is a great system." So, like on the on the kind of most boring example that I possibly could have provided you, um, <laughs> we we that was great. I think the other thing, like what I was saying earlier about finding the fun and like getting to a really core like loop and 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 like iterating on things, like that was something that we were okay about before but really really didn't do it to the extent that Ichiro does and and Dejaban like in terms of iterating and trying really hard to find the fun and like no try again no try again and like to see that we were like oh like we 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 need to do this more you know where um we we were kind of you know we try a few examples and then just pick one but like 
they were really looking for something that was just like really good. And I think that was something that from our process side, we were like, wow, they like, they, they really try a whole bunch of different angles really quickly to see what works. Um, and so it really helped with us, like in terms of just like prototyping things really rapidly and seeing what works and what doesn't like we really improved how we did that as a result of seeing how they operated. That sounds like you would need a better or a rock solid note taking note taking technique if that was your approach, right? Exactly. So the two the two things are actually related. The answer that you that you uh, you consider dry and the one that you don't, right? <laughs> if you're going to do that, you better be taking good notes, or else you just have this sea of really rapid prototypes and no real sense of which one worked or why it worked or what's worth keeping, right? Yeah. Is that something you want to do more? I mean, working with Dejabon specifically, maybe you can't you can't talk about exciting though, and maybe. But I mean, like now that you know this model works. You know, do you think that that fits into the future of Petrichor or is, does it totally come down to like which partner you're working with and what the, you know, what the actual relationship is? Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to the partner, like um, specifically for the Dejabon example, I just had known Ichiro for a while. And so there was already like a level of trust there. And um, totally. So I, I think for us, as we look more at like emerging tech and specifically like mixed and augmented reality. If there was an opportunity, like there were some bigger players in the space for the game, like for MR titles. So like um, resolution games has a game Demio and a bunch of other titles. And so like if an opportunity ever came along where there was like a, a larger, well-established mixed or virtual or augmented reality company that was looking to, to co-develop a title um i think if it aligned with that we would we'd definitely consider it again um because i think uh you spread out the risk a little bit where like now instead of like two you know now instead of one of you that's just hoping that the game does well um you know there's there's two of you and you're kind of attacking it from different thoughts and um i think for us like that that was nice to kind of have that. So I, I think, yeah, we would we would definitely do it again. I think just making sure that it aligns with the company goals and you know it's it's a project with the group that we like as much as we liked working with Dejamon. Let's talk about so we've we've talked about running the studio from a business perspective, from a design perspective, how those two things overlap. We haven't really talked about life outside of games too much. You are a gardener, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, at least you so, you were when a previous interview was talked. Have you have you kept it? <laughs> have you become more ambitious? I hate it now. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned you had some carrots that died. Sometimes sometimes people take that kind of yeah. thing real hard, but but it sounds like you bounced back. I you know so I I do I'm I've gravitated more I'd say towards house plants of late than than really like gardening food. Um, we do herbs and stuff still. But uh, fresh herbs I, make such a big difference when you're cooking at home. It's wild oh, yeah. how big a difference they make. No, it's great. Like, and so we we always every you know spring go and get them. And so I think um, we we do that. And then um, house plants really like in in the office. I have a a pretty good little garden um, that I maintain. And that's usually when I, whenever anyone comes into our office, that's usually one of the first things people mention is like, wow, you have beautiful plants. And we specifically had to find somewhere with really nice windows so that they could all stay alive. Um, so I do, I, I do still uh, enjoy that as a hobby. 
you're you're more of an indoor gardener, but you are kind of like you enjoy the outdoors, right? You you take a lot of hikes in Massachusetts, which where there are it should be said quite a few places to hike. There are, yeah, I know. I recently, so we moved. Um, I used to live in uh, the city of Worcester proper, mm-hmm. and um, I liked when when we lived there. Uh, but I, uh, my partner and I, we we moved to uh, Grafton, Mass, which is about. 20 minutes outside of Worcester. It's like kind of an old farming community and it's a bit more woodsy. And so we've been doing various walks uh, and trails that exist around here. And it's nice. We, we, I adopted, uh, or we adopted a, a, a dog, uh, about a little over a year ago now. Uh, and, um, actually kind of like interesting story with him. So the dog that we adopted, uh, there was a big news story, um, uh, around the time, uh, that there was this facility, uh, in Vigo, they basically provide, uh, animals for lab testing and, and, uh, they beagles as a dog breed are really popular for that, um, because of their temperament. And they had this facility where they had like, uh, 20,000 beagles that were all basically bred for lab testing and uh they the facility didn't shut down because of the conditions that they were in and so there was this huge then uh rescue effort like to place these twenty thousand dogs around the country and my partner um so like his family growing up they had had beagles they had three so um i i never had a dog growing up we talked about getting a dog eventually and so uh, when this came out and there was a, like all these beagles looking for a home, we were like, oh, that would be nice to get one. But we really like weren't sure. And <laughs> then a, the t- next town over got a bunch of puppies and we were like, all right, let's try. And we put it in and you know, we got the, the ours, Leroy. Uh, so he's a little over a year now, but we take him walking everywhere. So it's good. He keeps us going out. out. Yeah, my partner and I try every week or two to explore some corner of Rhode Island where we live mm-hmm. uh, that we haven't been to. And we always we, we got two rescue dogs. We got a uh, we got a Whippet Blue Healer mix and we've got mm-hmm. like a like a Puerto Rican stray what they call coconut terriers sometimes. Oh. Right. So, yes, a uh, fellow dog person. Um, very, very, uh, very delighted to hear that you have allowed a beagle to enjoy uh, a cozy life <laughs> and some nature. That is that is however relevant listeners may think it is or isn't. It is good news. <laughs> And good news is important. Yeah, it's it's nice. The the the, the game development lets me have the life uh, of having a cozy life with a beagle and going out in the woods, which is nice. Legitimately important, right? Like, yeah. I, like I, I feel like it's so easy to get wrapped up in like, but what kind of art are you producing, and therefore how immortal are you, or whatever? <laughs> it can get very abstract in your head, but at the end of the day, like if you're not living the life you want to live, then what are you doing? Right. Like this is, yeah. this is, yeah, it's uh it, it's really good to sort of step back and acknowledge the parts of your life that are, you know, where your where your work enables you to live the way you want, like you said, as opposed to just like that very American thing of, well, okay, you're, you're working all the time. And if you like what you do, that should be good enough. It's like, no, nah, it shouldn't actually. It's important to, <laughs> it's important to walk in the woods. Yeah, exactly. That's been or, like, or whatever or, brings you joy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really been core to like when we started this, we were all like, you know, we knew it was going to be hard work, but it was also like work-life balance has always been an important part. And, and like, just, you know, there's, there's, there are conferences and like long days and like events at night that I, you know, like we'll work the day and then travel out to Boston for an event. And like, and so it's like not, 
that I don't end up being busy some weeks. It's just like, yeah, you know, I, I try to purposefully make sure that, uh, as much as I can, I'm, 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 I'm done and, and can focus on fun stuff also, especially on weekends. And, um, you know, like it's something we try to really enforce as a studio. And I, I, I do think it's super important. Yeah, no, important to say, you know, because that's I think that is really necessary if you're going to do this thing sustainably over a period of time and, you know, sort of acknowledge that games are great, but people are more important than projects uh, at the yeah. end of the day. And and also, like, I feel like, you know, again, in the space of talking about the business side, there is sort of the reification of the 16 hour day or whatever. Uh, and it's important to note that there there is definitely another side to that coin that is ultimately more important. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Okay, final uh, uh, junk drawer topic. Not junk, but, you know, sundries. Uh, this is going to go live on Halloween, and I, I oh. believe you are kind of a big horror movie guy. Is that correct? Oh, 100%, yeah. So give me, give me some, get, hit me with some horror movies you have seen recently that have blown your mind, some favorites. Tell the people what they should do if they want to scare. Sure. All right. Well, I, I did just watch A24's Talk to Me, um, which was a really good um like this year for horror i i haven't seen too many that i've particularly loved but i did really enjoy that one um right now i'm about two episodes into um the fall of the house of usher which is a mike flanagan netflix netflix show how um, is that i was i know the source material but i haven't seen the show at all yet i'm enjoying it so far it, it it's 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 if if you've if you have you seen any of the other Mike Flanagan shows or movies? Uh, I don't think so. What are what are some of the other Mike Flanagan shows? I probably not if I have to ask that question. But um, so like the the Haunting of Hill House. Oh, and... totally that I've seen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and he also did Midnight Mass. Oh yeah, yeah. Which I which I have some friends who have very big feelings about, but I have not seen that one. Yeah, so for sure. Yeah. So it's it, he's got a similar vibe in this. So I think if you know you watched Midnight Mass and didn't love some aspects of it, it like the the what what people probably didn't like about that is is probably still prevalent in this. Um, <laughs> well, what is what is that? Because everyone I know who had a hard time with it, it's just that it was kind of close, right? Like people with religious trauma or what have you, where it's just like it wasn't that they thought it was poorly made. It's just that it was it was you know more than they wanted right at mm-hmm. that moment. Sure. Yeah, I I think uh like. Um, the other criticism and what I would say is like the, what I, like I loved it um, midnight mass particularly, but like um, it, people called it midnight monologues because the, the, <laughs> there was very wordy, you know, just people would go off on like a, a, a monologue basically. And it like not talk how normal human beings speak to one another. And so he has a little bit of a tendency in his work, I think to, to do that. Um, Personally, I don't mind that a bit. I don't mind things yeah. being heightened and, you know, like I know a writer wrote it. It's okay. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, in, I'm enjoying the fall of the house of Usher. It's a little bit different. It's definitely a bit more adult. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's entertaining so far. Um, turning that into a series is really interesting inherently, like even turning a post story into a feature. Like you usually have to go a little bit crazy because, you know, they're they're famously meant to be read in one sitting. It feels like so like that, as, as I understand it, and I'm not as familiar with the source material, but like um, I think like that sort of serves as the overarching plot. Mm-hmm. And then each of like the downfall of various family members is like tied in like an adaptation of another post story. So like 
I think like the Telltale Heart, the Raven, like they're all sort of told in this as well, wrapped in as like sub stories within like the larger tale. And so I think that's kind of cool that I think each episode is like a post story kind of like adapted to be the downfall of one of the members of the family. No, that's great. That's great. That's that's such a that's such a, a tidy way to you know like if a movie studio pitched this, it would be that each one would be, you know, it'd be the Poe extended universe. Whereas here we treat them as short stories, but we you know invent connective tissue so that they all form a larger narrative. That's that's smart stuff. I should for sure check that out. Yeah, and my only other two that I would recommend would be pretty much anything that John Carpenter did. Um, <laughs> I mean, co-signed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing particularly is just what I just love it. And, uh, and then it follows is is Mm, probably my favorite. I is like the music, the atmosphere, how weird that movie was. I just love everything about it. Definitely. John Carpenter has just one of those like singular, like it really feels like climbing into somebody's brain and be like, was this a mistake? Do I want to be here? Yeah, I do. (laughs) Like, (laughs) well, happy Halloween. Uh, This feels weird, of course, because, well, you know, we're we're talking during the Halloween season. So happy Halloween today and really every day. Um, And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, True. This was awesome. And that's the show. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with support from the people whose bootstraps I am holding and who are holding mine, Francis Michelle Cannon, Lucio Valentino, and El Viegas. Special thanks to Alan Dang. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker using icons from The Noun Project. The current version of our theme song is by me. You can find more music that I make at carpedemon.band or by checking out the Charity EP Jam, which is, for now, at charityepjam.bandcamp.com. Proceeds from the Charity EP Jam go to Able Gamers. Hope to see you in two weeks when Eric Peterson, a.k.a. Baja the Frog, will be here. Till then, do take care of yourselves, do take care of each other, and so long for now, everybody.